This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And uh, with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris. Hey, how are you doing today? I'm great. I'm great. How are you? I'm good, thank you. And who do we have on the 3D Pod today? Uh, well, today we've got Max, uh, Max Harris. Uh, and, well, he comes on a different kind of scale than most of the 3D printing activities that, that we are uh, seeing nowadays. So we focus on kind of like, you know, things that can fit in a bread box, mostly. Um, and Max is That's used no to printing things that are much, much larger than that. Uh, so he uh, has a, co- a, he's a co-founder of a company called Loci Robotics. And they make uh, well, large-scale robot uh, arm-driven 3D printing systems. So, and they have a hybrid and a subtractive solution again. So it builds and then it uh, takes away to, to finish the part. And that can make really huge parts. And that's, of course, we're seeing a lot of movement here in, in people generally using robot arm kind of um, construction methods. And also people uh, yeah, building much larger scales like boat hulls, drone wings, uh, formwork, uh, you know, big large scale tooling for aircraft, all that kind of stuff. So that's a very, really exciting place to be. So that's, uh, yeah. What, what, um, so welcome to the 3D pod, Mac. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. First off, like you got started in additive. Well, how did you get started in additive? Let's, let's yeah, let's first. start with that. <laughs> Uh, so I, uh, got started in additive, uh, I guess I bought my first, uh, desktop printer in 2015 or something like that, 14, maybe even. Um, so I've, I've been in, uh, just kind of tinkering around. I'm a, I'm a, a, a gearhead. I wrench on cars and I, I tinker and build machines. I build a CNC, built a printer, that kind of stuff. That was like the, the early on kind of, um, I guess, introduction to, to, uh, building machines and equipment and 3d printing is just such a versatile technique. And I just wanted to build things around the house and, you know, build print useful things that, you know, tooling that I could use around the house and shop and stuff like that. And then um, it kind of went hand in hand with my, my study. So I studied polymers and um, uh, so, yeah, it, it just made sense um, to get into, to additive from that perspective. Is, okay, is your PhD w- in polymers? Uh, it, is. it is. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. so, so, okay. So polymers, PhD, 3D printing interest. So what'd you do with that work wise then? I guess start getting started in uh, in polymers. Um, I, I started with physics, and so um, started with uh, actually um, kind of a, a biophysics approach um, in, in my grad school because I thought it was super fascinating. And then I changed the direction when I learned about polymers and how versatile they could be. Um, the, the University of Tennessee doesn't even have uh, really a a department focused on polymers. But um, they are kind of, uh, I think they were uh, elected last year to be like the world leading institution on polymer research. Um, and so it, it is a really high class program. Um, and I think part of that strength is because it is interdepartmental. And so uh, I, I studied polymers essentially from, uh, from a physics perspective during my master's and then uh, from a chemical engineering perspective um, for my PhD. So. Um, I always say I have a, a PhD in polymer physics, although that's not what the two pieces of paper say. Um, but that's <laughs> pretty much what the study was. It's uh, right. Know, no, that makes chemistry sense. physics. So wait, the, a PhD in polymer physics is like how lo- how far would the plastic ball bounce? Is that it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I mean, yes and no. Um, so my research specifically was on uh, essentially surface dynamics. Um, so it was a lot of, uh, so a polymer, I think this is not, not very common knowledge. People think of plastic and you're like, oh, it's this material, right? But if you look at a molecular scale of a polymer, you can kind of think of it as like a, a pearl necklace, right? So you have like repeating units, um, those are monomers, the, the individual units, and they're kind of chained together in these long kind of chains, right? And so that, that kind of gives us pearl necklace kind of uh, repeating unit structure. And then if you step one step back, it kind of looks like um, all these strings of, of polymers look like uh, kind of like a pot of spaghetti uh, for like amorphous polymers. So you can kind of think of like a, a kind of jumbled mess of all these polymer strings. And so if you look at, at the chemical structure of each individual monomeric unit and seeing how the, the essentially changing the molecular structure of the monomeric unit changes the interaction between the units themselves and interacting chains. And so all of these things have an effect on kind of the macromolecular properties, like how a thing is, right? And so, um, you know, changing the molecular structure can make a polymer stiffer, weaker, flexible, you know, that, that kind of stuff. And so that, that's kind of what my research was, is essentially changing chemical structure to uh, mechanical properties, and then specifically at interfaces, which, you know, for printing is very important because there are a lot of interfaces. And what can you tell us? What, what's the, what's the main <laughs> takeaway of your PhD? Like sum it up. Yeah, in short a, chains a are better than long chains. <laughs> if you want to make something flexible. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, that that is true. But uh, the the main uh, the main takeaway of my, my studies is um, these these polymers. If you if you think of a single chain and it's in a pot of spaghetti, it's kind of a homogeneous ish. Uh, you know, in in all directions, it's kind of surrounded. But at an interface, you lose that. And so at at um, you know the the very very top surface the molecular dynamics of the individual polymer chains is drastically different than in the bulk of a material. And so um, I, I used kind of uh, charged particles and ions to, uh, to essentially study that aspect of it, um, just because you can see it from a, a, you know, it's kind of a measurement technique almost. You can, you can see the molecular dynamics uh, if you have charged uh, polymeric units. So um, I was kind of able to measure in, you know, sub 10 nanometer films how, molecular dynamics are drastically different in those kind of thin environments and they are like much faster for example because there's not a confined boundary and stuff like that okay okay i like this let's do a little polymer mini yeah. masterclass. okay so we've got right. amorphous <laughs> and crystalline no, i'm serious i'm serious we use them all day every day but we don't we do like, no, i agree yeah, with you yeah yeah we, uh, so uh, you've got amorphous and crystalline like right? one like doesn't have a melting point or something i don't uh -huh. get it <laughs> so what's the difference <laughs> perfect Perfect question. So I, I spent the last uh, two, three days printing with polypropylene. So perfect example for that because it's semi-crystalline, right? Yeah. Um, and so that is actually a great example of how like the what happens on the molecular scale affects the macromolecular, the big properties, and how that relates back to printing. So um, essentially, the uh, uh, an amorphous polymer is kind of um, the the cooked pot of spaghetti that I've mentioned, right? It's the kind of the molecular scale and so like the 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 and crystalline is it, the spaghetti in the packet oh my god this is so correct. good correct forever i came up with this at some point in time in grad school i'm like oh my god this makes so much more sense than any textbook has ever it, it's it's cooked spaghetti versus raw spaghetti right and so uh in, in a crystalline polymeric structure you have 
much, much higher order, which means polymers can pack a lot more densely, which, you know, crystals are, are highly ordered structures, right? And so that makes them really tough and strong. And, um, you know, uh, amorphous polymers are more kind of flexible, flowing, even at like a room temperature uh, scale, they kind of morph and move on the molecular level, whereas crystalline structures are rigid, right? And so um, polypropylene, like I mentioned earlier, is a semi-crystalline material. So like you have, um, you have a little bit of, um, uh, of both in there. And so it's, it's a little bit right. tricky uh, to print with um, because you have to have it at the exact right temperatures. Uh, and so if you have, for example, um, you know, you got to be above the, the melting point of the crystalline regions and you have a, a drastic drop in uh, layer adhesion, for example, uh, once you dip below that. And so the it, crystals it makes won't it, bind and join to each other. Exactly. When the, the crystals are already rigid, you, you have the, the next layer that deposits on top of it just doesn't bond as strong because the, the only thing that is bonding is the amorphous regions and um, you don't get that interaction between the crystalline regions layer to layer. And so that, that um, you, you lose layer adhesion by like factors of like three, four times it decreases. So big drop. Uh, and so like, and, that's, that's a really cool like application of like, oh, this makes a lot of sense if you know how the molecules behave of like how to print things the right way. But so then you can also like, I realize it's not necessarily how like support works, but you could theoretically therefore change the temperature range as you're printing to intentionally not have adhesion to make like a, a structural support. Yeah, um, that, that would, uh, would work actually. We, um, uh, I've, I've used this before, uh, for kind of a, a print surface, um, so that I have a kind of a reusable, easy, like print stand type of thing is, uh, we call it printing a cold base. So you, you print a material and a material typically sticks well to itself. Um, and so like you can, you can print a base and then let it cool off and then print on top of it. And it creates an intentional weak point that then you can remove the actual part off of. Um, after it's done. So that, that's a, a kind of exactly that, but using it as a, a kind of a neat trick uh, when it comes to printing. That is a neat trick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, things, okay. things are a little bit different on the large scale uh, than yeah, 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 on, yeah. on the desktop scale. <laughs> I can imagine. Can imagine. Okay, so, and then also so, uh, tell us, talk us through, because we always use, like a lot of people use like, uh, you know, thermoplastic and polymer kind of interchangeably right or a thermoset <laughs> or whatever like talks through all these other these other kind of classifications of, of, the, of the plastics that we use or the polymers we use uh, so there, there are two main uh two main classifications of polymers when it comes to printing uh, and that's uh thermoplastics and thermosets uh thermoplastic you can think of uh kind of like wax you can heat it up or, or like a hot glue gun rather you can heat it up form the polymer into a shape and when it cools back down it retains that shape right um you know, just like wax with a candle, you, you light the candle, it turns liquid, you can pour it into a shape, and then when it cools down, it solidifies, and then you have that shape. So um, thermosets are kind of like a two-component epoxy, right? You mix two components, and they make a new thing. And so that new polymer that happens is different than the original input, uh, input parts. And each one of those has, a, has very, very big advantages for certain applications, right? So there, there are certain applications where um, thermosets are absolutely fantastic. Um, and then there are certain applications where thermoplastics are absolutely fantastic. And uh, we focus more on the thermoplastic side um, than the thermoset side. 
um, because one of the large advantages of thermoplastics is that they're easily recycled, especially on the large scale is a, is a huge benefit and, um, and also advantage of, of those plastics. So, um, you know, if you have like a, a, a large part that needs to be replaced, or if, uh, for example, let's say you, you print a, um, a set of picnic benches, right? You know, 10 years go by and, um, you know, you want to change the design. You know, one of the things you can do with a thermoplastic is you can grind that, that part up, whether it's a bench or a, a car part or whatever it is, grind it back up, repelletize it, and then you can print with it again. And so that makes a, a huge kind of circular economy and uh, recycling stream um, that with uh, thermosets is a lot more difficult. Yeah. And then, okay, another thing is like, okay, also like there's this thing called polymerization, right? Which is like when we take this monomer and it becomes a, a polymer, right? Yes. Now in, in SLA and or stereolithography about polymerization, at least processes, that's actually happening like on the machine, right? Exactly, exactly. So it's a, it's a photopolymerization, uh, photopolymerization, and you can initialize polymerization in, uh, you know, that, that's the, the polymer chemistry aspect of it. You can essentially make those monomers stick together into chains with varying different techniques. If it's light, if it's, you know, other radiation like microwave, um, if it's, you know, exposure to uh, other chemicals, um, that kind of stuff. That there, there are different ways to, to link um, these these um, yeah monomers together like you said but like with SLA for example um, you use a, a display or a laser um, it, so instead of you know melting powders together um, you're actually creating the polymer where the light hits the monomers and it fuses together and then and is there anything you generally want us to know about plastics or polymers like anything generally you'd be like oh my god this is uh, more people should know this <laughs> um, well the I think they're really, really versatile materials. Um, the cool thing about 3D printing and, and plastics is that, you know, we have a technique and we get to use and choose which materials we work with. And so they're, you know, in, in uh, uh, my case or our case, uh, we chose thermoplastics, which is really cool because there are a lot of different thermoplastics for a lot of different applications. And so with 3D printing, the really cool part is you can choose the right material for the application that you want to work with, right? And so that kind of gives you a lot of uh, flexibility for the same process. So if you want a, you know, if you want a material that is an autoclave mold that needs to withstand high temperatures and high pressures for, you know, hundreds of cycles, you choose a, a specific polymer. But if you want to, um, you know, uh, you know, have something flexible, you can choose a different polymer or, or tough or rigid or you know, what, what have you, uh, you can kind of, uh, you know, just this overarching uh, term of polymer, there, there are a lot of different kind of things, there are different types of polymers that you can use for a specific application. Yeah, and also, of course, you can compound these polymers, so you mix in all sorts of additives, all sorts of materials, all sorts of stuff to change their properties and make them even more specific exactly. to a particular task. And that's, I think, often overlooked. You can get a batch of 2,000, kilos or whatever maybe even 100 kilos depending on like how much you're willing to pay of a particular color to just you know be better against uv degradation uh, in low you know in temperatures below zero or something you could do you can make it as crazy as you want these guys can you know kind of like pimp your material to, to suit your needs all the time okay so one thing i think is one interesting thing is like so there's a lot of stuff now about recycling and recycling polymers and making new and i think i applaud a lot of it and also a lot of it is plainly kind of like 
you know, they're all well, exaggerating to the point of maybe lying. And uh, so talk to us a bit about reusing polymers, because that's, that's something that is becoming much more interesting. And But uh, typically, when I've done this in projects, we, we've always had to include like 30% virgin material. You can't infinitely reuse a polymer, like after six, seven times or whatever, after one or two times already, like a lot of properties start to degrade. Uh, so talk to us a little bit about how feasible it is to recycle these and, and you know, if they're maybe better or worse candidates for this kind of thing. That is a fantastic point. So I see a lot of n- numbers published in, in uh, you know, read marketing material uh, of companies where, you know, I, I read the numbers and I think, well, that, I don't know if that's true. Right. So, um, yeah, that, that's, uh, you know, wildly uh, popular to say stuff about recycling, but uh, recycling in my experience and the projects that we have used to with um, is, is very possible. And on the large scale is uh, a fantastic uh, for for these types of applications. And so um, we've done a lot of material studies over the years. Getting into the background, how we how we got here um, might help a little bit to describe. But essentially, we've done a lot of research when it comes to the materials, how how different materials print, what additives, fillers, that kind of stuff are. Um, all the way to how do materials degrade when you recycle them once, two, three, five times, and you know what happens when you print with them, um, that kind of stuff. So um, there, there's definitely data out there. There's definitely data out there with uh, from material suppliers. That is a heavily researched topic, um, and, and so you can actually reuse and reprint material several times. And uh, a lot of the material that we uh, print with now uh, is actually recycled. And uh, you know, used to be printed parts that have been ground and and are now reprinted with. So uh, we we have a lot of examples firsthand to show that it does work and it works well. I'm curious. So so in injection molding, um, I know there's an upper limit of I think it's like it's either 25 or 30 percent of what regrind can be put in before you start losing. You know, your parts become brittle, and you lose some structural integrity on that. Is it different in additive manufacturing because the process is different? Is it more versatile? So I would say it's it's different. Yes, uh, especially on the large scale, right? So um, right. typically, when when we print, we print with uh, you know um, aspect ratios of you know like the the bead maybe a point two inches tall and uh, an inch wide or something like that. Uh, we can print thinner uh, up to uh, maybe down to a quarter inch wide bead, but you know, even uh, thicker than an inch, no problem. And so you're pushing through a lot more material. And so you have a lot more volume and body than you might in a, in a thin injection molded part, right? So um, there's a difference there. And then uh, additionally, the, the extrusion process is, is a whole lot different. And so um, the way that the polymer and the uh, essentially behaves as it is extruded through uh, an extrusion head and deposited directly down is very different than, uh, for example, an injection molding machine where it gets uh, essentially, uh, you know, extruded in a similar way, but then it has to flow into a mold, uh, and so the the flow through the mold changes directions, alignments, that kind of stuff, and so that uh, also creates a, a different in. Uh, oh, the because the flow properties are changing the direct, like the exactly. monomers are are yep. not being arranged in the same way when they're first extruded. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, exactly. And then um, it changes you know, in, in our case, we, we print a lot with um, with like carbon or glass fiber, uh, for example, that are that are already mixed in with pellets. And so we, we print in a pelletized uh, feedstock. So it's not filament that we print, uh, but um, it's actually pellets. It's the same kind of format as, as used in injection molding, actually. It's the same kind of feedstock. Um, but these pellets, they, they look like mouse poop, honestly. They're, you know, maybe a... a uh, a tenth of an inch long cat food. and, and look like cat, or food. cat food. <laughs> no, it's smaller than cat food. I think you know. I don't know. I it's it's smaller that. than I mean, smaller than small cat food. Let's put it that yeah. way. Um, but yeah, that that's kind of uh, essentially where we feed into the machine. But the um, the the fibers and fillers and and all that kind of stuff is already compounded into those pellets. And so uh, one of the things that you you do lose structures on is when you you print with it. You know, you ha you have a certain alignment of those fibers and arrangement of those fibers, but when you then grind the part up in in a big, you know, it looks right, like a big blender essentially, um, yeah. it does break those chains a little bit, and so your fibers do tend to get a little bit shorter after recycling, and that does have an effect on structure. Um, but <laughs> what we've seen is that uh, going from virgin material, and these are just off the top of my head numbers, uh, from virgin material, you lose about eighty percent of material properties, and then uh, after that. It, stays consistent for uh, a while uh, or several several times of recycling let's put it that way it's it's of course different for you know different fillers and different materials and different you know polymers and that kind of stuff so that's like uh, that's like really numbers depends. for like that's like numbers for pet and abs right or what or... uh i think that was abs yeah yeah. yeah. Okay. Before we get off materials, and we actually get to the robots in a second. No, 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 Two really cool questions. Two really cool questions. Well, well, I, I have, I have a cool. I want to ask a question too. So, hold on. I, I want to know your thoughts. It's not a contest, point. Max. I know. <laughs> we all get to ask questions. <laughs> I want to know your thoughts and feelings on the bioplastics that are now coming out. I mean, there's still monomers and there's still polymers and all that, but I'm just curious, like PLA and PHA and all of these other materials that people are trying to yep. play with now. Um, That's think, the, yeah. Does it work fantastic. on large um, scale? Yeah. Um, and so we, we have a, um, the, the main one that we've printed with uh, recently. Uh, I mean, there, there are a whole bunch of them out there, and I can't wait to, to uh, you know, get my hands on them and, and try them a lot because I think it's a – it's a very, very good idea to make polymers out of, uh, you know, more bio-derived, I don't necessarily want to say sustainable, but bio-derived right, bio uh, streams. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, the, the one that we've recently printed with uh, or, or like to print with and have for years is a uh, kind of a wood fiber filled uh, PLA. Um, and so that's a, a very interesting material. It smells like a, uh, like a fresh cut piece of MDF, like particle board. Uh, just run through the saw when you print it. So it, it's a lovely smell in the shop when we print that one. Um, but yeah, that, that's uh, one that we can definitely print with. And it's, it's a bio-derived uh, filler and it's a bio-derived uh, resin. So that's, that's really cool. Um, yeah. one, of the, one of the main things that uh, people tend to forget is that polymers are derived from crude oil, typically, right? Or at least some sort of fossil resource um, when they're produced on a large scale. And so like getting, getting away from, from that kind of source uh, for materials that we use all around us, right? If, you, if at any given time, any person that hears this looks around them, there's plastic, right? There's plastic everywhere. Uh, whether it's a, a table, a chair, a dashboard of a car, you know, there's, there's just the, in the clothes that we wear, like it's, it's everywhere. And so 
um, being a little bit more conscious about where all of that comes from, um, I think is uh, is a good stream of thought and and you know becoming you know we we can't mine the earth for resources infinitely, and so if there is a way to to obtain polymers from a a bio derived standpoint, that might make sense. Do you have a current favorite on the bio side? Uh, I do like the Woodfield PLA. Um, but yeah, okay, but so that's then... a fun one. Um, but but there there's several others that uh, I want to try that might replace those as my favorite. I just haven't printed with them yet. So fair enough. Mm. So there are um, there are materials, for example, that are compostable. Um, and so PLA is technically compostable, but it's industrially compostable. compostable. Exactly. So that's that's a little bit of a misleading, and I think intentionally, but uh, misleading uh, marketing scheme. For uh, for the compostability of that one, so um, essentially you can compost it, but you need a big pressure cooker to do so, and so that doesn't really, it, you know, it, it's not you can throw it in your backyard and it'll be gone in ten days. But they do mm-hmm. actually make those types of polymers now, and so um, like I said, I haven't printed with them yet, but I really want to. Um, and, and so for uh, you know thinking of possible applications, let's say let's say you pr- uh, plant a tree, right, and you have a um, you know a, tree and you buy a, a tree some people you know plant trees as a seed and then watch it grow some people buy ginormous trees right um, but think of like a, a park that's installed or you know any sort of uh you know a neighborhood is built or that kind of stuff like not a personal but more of a, a commercial type of setting trees are typically purchased like grown trees are just planted right and like for example one of the things is you could print the print actual pots like flower pots but in large for those trees where the trees come in it makes the roots more uh, safer you could grow the trees in the pots already um you know it, there's a higher success of of the transplant of the tree working if you don't have all the roots disturbed and the, the earth disturbed and they can be watered in the process and stuff like that but think of a giant tree that's in a pot that's 3d printed and you can just plop it in a hole in the ground covered up with earth and the pot will degrade underground right mm-hmm. like that right. is the type of application where I'm like, all right, why aren't we doing this, right? Um, that fantastic application of 3D printing, you know, you can print whatever size, you can manufacture on demand, you don't have to have a, a, a huge storage of, you know, 3D printed planters that might degrade on, on a lot uh, if they're not used in time, like that kind of stuff. It's like, that is the type of like novel approach to application that, that would be cool for this, right? Yeah, totally, totally. My favorite polymer thing is uh, the PA11, the Arkema PA11. You have an MGF and powder fusion. You know? I love that stuff because it finishes so well. It actually feels so nice in consumer products. And I, but I have noticed this thing that where it's like either, well, it's not either, but typically it's either it's like bio-derived, like the PA11 is from castor beans, right? Or it's like recyclable, right? <laughs> so oftentimes the P11 like recycles to um, as well. So so you know often there's a there's a bit of a choice there as well. Among, like what do you what do you want or what do you need from your environmental kind of goals? You know, because like PLA, you know, like you said, it's it's not actually it doesn't actually degrade, and also it uses seven liters of water per kilo of PLA, and it's a food source material at the moment. It's made from and, corn, and it destroys recycling systems when it gets into recycling systems. Yeah, also yeah, they lo- they hate it. <laughs> You know, to to be honest, there's a there's a huge part about manufacturing, you know, sustainably, uh, whether it comes from biodrive polymers or even recycling, um, that is typically not talked about. And I'm a huge fan, 
of essentially fixing this problem. That's why I'm, I'm bringing it up is a lot of people want to print with, uh, there's a high demand for printing with recycled polymer, right? Um, and it has to, I, I fully support that. It is great. But what people sometimes neglect to see or don't know about is that oftentimes to recycle the polymer is way more energy efficient, uh, intensive than making new polymer, right? And so, um, it, and then there are not that many recycling centers out there to, to do that. So, at, you know, at some point in time, it's like you, you want to keep the polymer out of the landfill. I, I do, right? Like that's what you want. But if you're, uh, you know, trucking a, a, a polymer from, uh, from the East Coast to the West Coast to be recycled there, to be shipped back to the East Coast, to be the, like you lose all of the efficiencies of, of the recycling process, right? And so um, same with, with the uh, bio-derived polymer. It's fantastic that we're not making it from, you know, the, the natural resources that, you know, are, are, you know, not great for the planet to be mined and stuff like that. But if it takes 10 times as much energy to, to make a bio-derived polymer, and like you said, you're taking away from energy streams and water usage and all those like negative aspects that are not necessarily talked about, um, you know, then is there really a, a benefit to it, right? And I say this not to say that recycling is bad or biodirect polymers are bad. I absolutely don't mean that. I think they're fantastic things, but I think those are the directions that we still need to develop towards to make those as good as the the plastics that are commonly available everywhere, right, on the market today. You know, virgin material from you know our typical plastics are are not recycled and are not biodirect, and they should be. Yeah, I, th I think the answer, like the only answer I've come up with that I think could work is this idea of seeing a materials company more as a custodian to a material, right? Yes. So for example, they would make a material, then they would give it to a toy manufacturer and then they would recycle it, but it would go back. So they, they know the source, right? That's the key. It needs to have a QR code or something. So they know the source, it would go back and then it would get recycled to be like a car part. Then the car company gives it back when that's broken. And then they would be like, they would have to offer this as like a custodianship service and that would make more money that way because then all of a sudden it's so more of an intangible thing. Yeah. Exactly what you're describing is what um, our material suppliers are starting to uh, adapt this type of concept. So, um, which is really, really cool. Um, and so there, there are material uh, suppliers that, for example, um, this is really, really good for, uh, let's say, mold making, right? If you, if you have a large scale aerospace mold that, you know, weighs 5,000 pounds, right? But you need maybe 10 parts pulled off of it and then you're done with the mold. What else, what do you do with it? Do you throw it away? Oftentimes those like the, the high engineering grade resins, we know this from, from the desktop printers, they're very expensive, right? Um, much more than, than the cheap kind of common PLA ABS types of, of polymers. And so um, if, uh, you know, for, for those high, high grade mold making polymers, the, the cost can be, you know, close to $20 a pound. And so if you have, you know, a 5,000 pound mold sitting there, that's a lot of money. To just throw away after 10 pulls of a part. And so if, if the material supplier says, okay, this is our material, we know it, it's went through your process, it was 3D printed, we know exactly what happened to it, we can take it back, regrind and resell it to you, you can print the next mold with it, and the next mold with it, and the next mold with it. And you know, they have all the data to back it up, and then they can go, hey, you know, for the next one, that's fine, but you've already had this particular material five times, we're going to mix 20% virgin material in there so that it retains the structure, right? Or take some of the recycled material that we know how many times it's been recycled and mix it in with other customers' virgin material, right? And then it, it turns into this whole kind of 
circular stream where the recycling does work. And so that's really that's a really, really cool thing about 3D printing, especially on the large scales, because you, you can actually make that work. You can make that manufacturing work. And that is fantastic. I think it's a wonderful idea. And I think it's also wonderful you could do this on a local scale, a national scale, whatever. You, you could do this as just a couple of partners together. So I like that idea of just doing it starting small as well. I want to yes. actually ask, ask, uh, ask a, a question about like just 3D printing. So, okay, for example, when you're making large things, I know that you need almost always or pretty much always you need fiber in glass fiber, carbon fiber in the, uh, the printing material in order to, to keep your object from warping right and we have warping issues like in in, in 3d printing generally so why does this thing warp, warp? yeah that's a, that's a really <laughs> good question and so um hot things are bigger than uh, cold things it okay, sounds yeah. stupid but that's as simple as it is right and so we can experience warp on like a small small scale right like if you have a, a part that you print on the desktop and it doesn't stick to the build plate very well and it, it comes up you know, fractions of an inch, like eighth inch, maybe even a quarter inch. Um, you know, on the on the desktop scale size, you're like your part is ruined, right? But maybe you can still use part of it either way. If you if you're thinking about the large scale, and uh, uh, you know, need to talk about exactly like the scale of manufacturing that we are doing here. But you know, if you print a part that's 13 foot long or 15 foot long, and you have that same level of warp, I've seen parts come up a foot. Right, and so warp can be a huge issue if um, you know if there are certain certain materials, certain print parameters are not um, within the limits of large scale additive, and th those limits are different from the large scale and the small scale. Uh, that's kind of what you want to watch out for. But why does warp happen? Um, essentially, you're you're depositing down a layer, right? Three D printing is all layer by layer by layer manufacturing, so you're you're putting down a base layer. It's at uh, extrusion temperature. Let's call it hot, right? It's it's hot, um, and then by the time you come around to your next layer that you deposit on top, um, we call the time that it takes to print over essentially the same spot, next layer up. We call that the layer time, right? Um, and so essentially, you're depositing a layer um, on top that is hot, but the previous layer has had time to cool, and it's had time, you know, that layer time. Uh, amount to cool and so by the time you're depositing on top then your second bead has cooled down to let's say a medium but your bottom one may already be cold and so as the parts um uh, uh cool off they contract right and so you're consistently depositing a hot kind of expanded um piece of plastic that sticks very well to a cold one and so if you're, uh, think of like putting two pieces of paper on top of each other, gluing them together, and then taking the top piece of paper and um, kind of folding it in the middle or shrinking it so that it's, it's smaller. You can, you can envision that the bottom one would curl up at the edges, right? That's essentially how warp happens is um, the, the very top layers that you're depositing shrink. And so they kind of contract and pull the whole part together at the top Whereas at the bottom, it's already cool and in place. And so that creates a bending motion at the corners. Okay, thank you for that. And then, and then how do the fibers then counteract that? By, by, how does that work then? Yeah, so, so the fibers make it, uh, everything stiffer. Um, so the, the real, real part where they help is um, they don't allow the polymer to contract as much. 
because uh, it has kind of an, infer an internal um, internal framing ribbing structure. Think of it as like rebar and concrete, right? So you have something that is essentially lets the polymer retain the shape that it had when it was 3D printed, when it was extruded, and don't allow it to contract as much, which then in turn, um, you know, make the warping forces less. That's cool. Thank you for that. And okay, another thing. What's happening yeah. when we're printing, right? So we've got this polymer. It's in a nozzle. It gets heated up. What's actually happening? We, when we print, so uh, our system, um, as Loka Robotics, we have, uh, you know, our system is a, is a robotic arm-based 3D printer. And so we have a, uh, an extrusion head um, on there that can put, push out 100 to 150 pounds per hour of material, depending on which material. It's material dependent. Some flow better than others. Um, and so we're pushing through a lot of material. And so there's, a, there's an extrusion screw in there that actually takes these, uh, these granulates that we talked about earlier, and it kind of compresses them and forces them. And um, the, the friction and pressure within the screw is what actually melts the polymer, and then it's extruded out of a nozzle. And so uh, we rely less on essentially heating from the temperature of the external heaters and more on the actual mechanics of it, the extrusion to melt the plastic. And so at the point that uh, it is extruded and the, uh, the robotic arm, its purpose is to move the extrusion head around where we tell it, right? And so uh, long story short, it's a hot glue gun on a stick is what I always call it, right? You feed in material at the top, you kind of squeeze the handle. There's a mo motor that does that, but it essentially melts out uh, the hot glue at the bottom. And then- Sounds more um, like a 3D pen on a, on a robot arm. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, that, that's exactly what it is. It's, a, it's a, a big extruder and the robot moves around. Now, in reality, that's a way oversimplification of the system, yeah, right? So there's, there's a lot that goes into it, a lot of knowledge, a lot of science, a lot of development, um, a lot of patents. That oh, kind of stuff okay. that... But what I, what I meant to say is, that, okay, at one point, this thing is going to be melted, right? Uh -huh. And then there's a, what you say is a bead, and that is laid down into a track, right? Or, well, mm -hmm. it depends on, and then... Well, it depends on who you talk to, what vocabulary they use. But what's actually happening on a like from a physical level or for a physics level, if you will, like ah, to that, okay. Understood. To that, Understood. that polymer. Uh, let's focus on amorphous polymers first. Um, so what happens on a molecular scale is if you introduce uh, energy into a system, right, heat, um, it allows the molecules to, uh, it essentially energizes the molecules. So they, they have a lot of energy, they wiggle, right? Uh, lack of better terms, they wiggle and they wiggle a lot and it kind of bounces around. There's a lot of energy in the system. They're hot. Everything is free flowing. There's a lot of space between molecules and it's kind of, it, it allows the whole system to be very uh, active and flowing. And so that's the kind of the molecular state of polymers coming out of the, uh, out of the nozzle. It's kind of like envision back to the pot of spaghetti, but you're taking in your hands uh, the actual spaghetti in the pot and kind of wiggling both of your hands, right? The, all the, the chains kind of move within each other. And so that's, that's kind of happens in, at the, in the molten state, right? And so when um, the energy goes out of the system, i.e. it cools down, right? Um, temperature is just energy. And so like when it cools down to, to room temperature, most of that energy goes away. And so like the, the polymer chains move a lot slower and um, essentially um, they still move, but very, very, very slow. And so the uh, amorphous polymers uh, have a kind of a, a fake 
transition. It's not really a, a real temperature transition, like uh, you know, melting or evaporation or something like that. But uh, it, it's called a, a glass transition. Um, so amorphous polymers are, are glass materials, and so they they have a uh, kind of a molten uh, state, and then a more rigid um, glassy state is, is what it's called. And so um, when the transition between between the the active state and the glassy state is essentially dependent on time. So um, this is really kind of complicated, but also really easy. So like think of an, an airplane that's like way away in the sky. If you look at it and look away and look at it again, the airplane is moving and it's moving really fast. But if you just look at it and look at it again, it seems to be in the same spot, right? And so that actually, it, it looks to you like it's in the same spot. And so that's kind of how the polymers are in their glassy state. And so they're still moving around. They're just moving a lot slower than you're looking at them, right? And in that case, they're in the, the glassy state. And so um, essentially the, going from the, uh, the molten state to the glassy state, it's just they start moving slower than, than you're looking at them. So the time scale is 100 seconds typically. Then they're solid, rigid, what have you. And then um, you know, they're, they're a bead that when the, the printer comes back around, deposits them on top of again. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Okay, so when I'm increasing my temperature, right? <laughs> if I go from 209 to 230 or something like that, what what, what happens to the the just everything just happen faster or yes. what's actually going to happen? Uh, it, everything happens faster. There's a a, um, a point where um, materials start to degrade. If you go too hot, it, it starts breaking chains or breaking molecules, uh, you know, connections, something like that. Some some materials like ABS. Um, you know, that they start off gassing if you print them too hot. Um, you know, that's, that's what the kind of a nasty smell is and the, the styrens aren't necessarily healthy to breathe if you, if you print ABS too hot. So, um, you know, you can actually degrade the material if you go too hot, but in general, yes, things just move a lot faster. And typically what that means on your actual material levels, the, the polymer is more liquid when it comes out. Okay. Every polymer has like a different, different glass transition range at the end of the day, right? And therefore, exactly. exactly. Yeah. You just have to be in the range. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. This is cool, dude. I think, I think we do a lot more, but I like this kind of like, you know, these are the things that are so kind of obvious. We don't really talk about them much. I thought this was really nice to, to, to kind of look a little deeper into these things. Um, yeah. Okay. Let's talk about this low-side robotics because we, we've been kind of <laughs> yeah. avoiding talking Gen about your startup. Gents around so, all, the, all, all the stuff. So, yeah, let me, let me start with the beginning. So, um, I, yeah, I'm a please. gearhead. I like wrenching. I, I mentioned that before. I, I like building things, making stuff. And so at some point in time during my PhD, uh, you know, I was PhD chemical engineering, what do you do? You work for some chemical company in, in a lab somewhere and, you know, become a group leader and then you retire, right? Like that's, wasn't really appealing. And it, it occurred to me uh, really towards the end of my degree that that was kind of the, the traditional track that that study would, would provide. And I, I studied it because it's fun and it's entertaining and it's, I, I wanted to essentially figure out the cool science behind it, not necessarily because what career can I get with that particular job? And so I was close to graduating and I thought to myself, well, crap, what, what, if, what situation have I gotten myself into? Because the jobs that you typically get are not the ones that I want. And so um, I was lucky enough, um, there's a, a local company uh, called Local Motors. Um, if you guys are in the 3D printing industry, you are likely familiar with them. Um, they have since, I think they went out of business beginning of last year, sadly, but that's a different story. But um, anyways, Loci Robotics, um, together with the Oak Ridge National Lab, 
2014, decided to uh, have a joint project where they wanted to 3D print a vehicle. Um, and so with that collaboration of Locomotors and Oak Ridge National Lab and then uh, Cincinnati uh, Incorporated, um, have developed essentially large-scale 3D printing as we know it today with the thermoplastic. And so um, within a, a very short time span, they went from an idea to an actual 3D printed car. Um, and so the very first one was printed at IMTS in 2014. Um, and then they printed it at the show, assembled it, and were driving it around the show kind of uh, as a publicity stunt. But it, it was the very first 3D printed car. With my polymers background and my wrenching background and, and all of this kind of fun enthusiasm, I was lucky enough to get a, a job because uh, Local Motors had a, um, a facility in Knoxville here. So um, it was down the road, half hour away. And so um, I started there as a, a vehicle dynamics engineer and uh, later was the engineering manager for the R&D part of the company in, in Knoxville. And then uh, kind of uh, worked there on the, the Ollie vehicle, which is a 3D printed uh, electric or was it 3D printed electric shuttle bus? And so we were working on kind of developing the technology to be able to 3D print a you know load bearing frame for a road going vehicle. You know, it's like it's one thing to, to print a giant mold where you just put down a bunch of material and machine a shape, and all you have to do is uh, it has to do is make sure it doesn't warp. Whereas if you're actually going into the structure of things, you actually have to make sure that it you know it doesn't crack apart when it hits a pothole and, you know, it's crash tested and all of those things. And so uh, that's actually where I met uh, my business partner um, that I started Loci Robotics with um, because at, at the time, Local Motors wanted to focus everything on production of the Ollie vehicle um, and we wanted to develop the technology. So uh, we split off from Local Motors, um, formed an engineering consultancy specifically focused on helping people get started with large scale 3D printing. Um, at the time, we had a lot of clients, customers, experiences where, you know, these, these big, big companies with, you know, billion dollar research facilities were buying these, you know, million dollar printers, three, four, five million dollar printers with an entire uh, R&D team, an entire facility dedicated to it. But it would take over a year for them to get a usable part off of it just because of the learning curve and the novelty of 3D printing. But we knew that, right? We, we were there at the very beginning. We have developed the technology, we worked with the material suppliers, the uh, machine suppliers, and all those things to, to essentially have that wealth of knowledge. And so we're like, all right, there's a niche in the market, we can help you. And then uh, from there, we actually transitioned to, uh, because we kept getting more and more requests for, hey, can't you just print this for us? And so we're like, all right, well, we need to get into 3D printing again. Um, and what do we do? Uh, all of the machines were million plus dollars. and um, you know, we'd, we'd used most of them before um, through, you know, local motors or consultancy and, and uh, customer experience and stuff like that. And we weren't really happy with any of the products that were out on the market, to be honest, right? They were, they were way overpriced. They were massive where you need an entire building in order to house them. And they weren't cost effective, right? There's no way that you can um, 3D print the things that I think should be 3D printed on a $5 million machine and make money with it right? Aerospace molds, fantastic application. Anything in the consumer good range, way overpriced. It's just not possible from a financial standpoint. So we decided to start from scratch and essentially build the perfect printer from our experience, right? We built it from a user's perspective, not from a, hey, look, we have a giant gantry system that houses a mill. 
let's slap a 3D printer hand on it and see what happens. But actually fundamentally build it from a, these are the absolute optimized best things in order to 3D print and do it well. And so um, that's really was our goal to build our printer for ourselves so that we could print the best parts possible. And then when, at some point in time, halfway through, the, mm-hmm. sorry, when did you finish the first printer? Uh, we, we started Loci Robotics in, uh, in June of 2021 and we finished the first printer. Our, actually our first ever print was in February of last year, February, 2020. Oh, this is very new. Okay, cool. Yeah. Very cool. Um, and so we, we started the consultancy, I guess, beginning of 2021 or, um, I guess fall of 2020. Um, but yeah, Loci Robotics as a machine manufacturer was, uh, was founded 2021. Um, and then it took us a little over half a year to, to, uh, to have our first system complete. And, um, yeah, we, we sold that system to a company and, and they're happily using it and, um, yeah, working on the next one and, uh, build, building one for a shop now. And so like there, there are so many things that you could do with this type of technology that's just not accessible. Um, but yeah, it, we were halfway through the build and we, we figured, Hey, um, if we, who have intimate knowledge with the industry can't find the perfect printer that we would want to spend money on, then nobody else can either. And so that's actually how we transitioned from just building a printer for ourselves to saying, hey, there's a niche in the market. We can cover that niche because we already have the system. Let's go to the market with this system. And so that's kind of the, the optimal system that we designed for ourselves that we're now selling to everybody. That's cool. How many have you sold so far, if you can disclose? Um, there, we sold one system to California, um, and it's, it's a really cool company where we have a a very good partnership with them. They've actually since moved to Knoxville. Um, and then we're working on, uh, essentially the next, the next couple, uh, currently. So very cool. Yeah. What do you think the opportunity is? I mean, are selling machines, doing the service, doing both at the same time or. So what we currently do at Loci is all three. And so we, we have three legs of the business. The main one is, is making the machines, right? Uh, we, we make a, a, a very affordable machine compared to everybody else. We make a very capable machine compared to everybody else. And I mean, to us, it's the best machine on the market, right? Um, and, and a lot of people can, can take use into it. Um, we've actually have a lot of interest from kind of up and coming, starting startup kind of companies rather than um, established companies let's put it that way and so um you know there's a lot of like hey um can you print this part for us because we want to see if 3d printing actually works or if we can use 3d printing uh we work with a lot of like small and medium uh sized businesses that you know can take advantage of 3d printing but don't necessarily have the budget to buy their own printer right and so um uh, so that's kind of our our main passion is is trying to get as many people as possible access to this technology because it is so so good to make so many things but nobody has access to it because it's reserved for the you know the airbuses and the local motors and the the large companies and um you know my favorite example uh is uh we we printed a, a 10 foot long playground slide uh for for one of our neighbors here in our shop uh he builds playground equipment and his uh, steel slide that he had on order, steel was incredibly difficult to find over COVID. And so he was behind on his build because 
his playground slide was a half a year lead time. And so he came to us and said, hey, can you 3D print this for me? And like, can, can actually 3D printing work for this type of application? We said, yeah, sure, that's fantastic for this application. And so he handed us a napkin sketch and four days later we handed him the, the printed slide. And so, cool. you know, that's, that's, there was a weekend in between there too. So we you know, took a couple of days off, but like, it, it's a, uh, you know, it's a super, super cool technique. And we came in, you know, four days versus half a year and a fraction of the cost actually, like we, we made it cheaper than the steel side would have been. So like it, it, it can help so many people and so many applications that are not currently using it because it's not achievable. It's not obtainable. It doesn't make financial sense to buy a $5 million printer to print chairs. Right. But if you if you have a system that, you know, that can actually afford that and you can make a valid business case of printing planters and chairs and uh, tables and, and uh, housing and those kinds of things, then like, why not? Right. And so that is really our, our aim and goal for the company is to to make the technology accessible to anybody that can take make use of it. So what we, what we do at Loci is we sell the machines, we offer print services, and then uh, for, uh, you know, we, we also offer uh, essentially the, the engineering consulting services still as kind of um, a focus to help customers find success with our system, right? We see it as if, if the customer that buys a machine from us is not successful with that machine, doesn't make money with that machine, then we didn't build the right machine for them, right? And so... Our goal is to essentially help, you know, people, the people that say, hey, I want to 3D print a house. This is a crazy idea. Is this even possible? I want to 3D print a horse trailer. Is this even possible? I want to print, you know, you name it. Is this even possible? Uh, we want to say yes. And we want to help them get there. So printing, printers, and consulting. So I, I just wanted to ask, like, like you talk about cost, obviously, you know, $5 million machine. Approximately, we don't need an actual price tag, but like you're one of these these machines that you're making. What are they yeah. costing? Yeah, a person. Hundreds so, of thousands, so, tens of thousands. Uh, so uh, our machine is essentially a, a complete hardware solution for 3D printing, right? It, uh, it has the extrusion head. The standard build platform is a five foot by 10 foot uh, print table. And we can print six feet tall over that. That is the standard build table that fits in, you know, the biggest rectangular box essentially that we could fit in the, the robot access. However, um, the we can fit four of those build tables in the same kind of robot reach. So like the robot can print a lot larger for, for other applications. Uh, essentially, uh, what we have is, uh, you know, the, the print head, the table, we, uh, you mentioned at the very beginning, uh, we also have coming standard with our machine, a subtractive side of things. So the robot can drop off the print head and pick up a machining spindle to, to finish surfaces, to drill holes, cut slots, that kind of stuff. Um, that's really helpful for, you know, mold making, but also um, essentially getting final parts off of the printer. Um, and so that entire hardware solution that comes as a kit um, is right around a half a million dollars. Depending on options. Okay, yeah, but that does a lot, so that's yeah, cool. Okay, super cool, super cool. Hey, Max, thank you so much for for being here today, and thanks. We didn't really get to speak much about your company because like a little bit of a mini polymer masterclass there, but but thank <laughs> you so much for 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 today. Yeah, well, um, it, you know, it, it. I know that we didn't really speak very very much about the the company, but uh, if you or any of the listeners 
uh, would like to get in touch, um, please look in on our website. It's uh, lowcarrobotics.com. Uh, follow us on, on uh, social media. Uh, it's, you can find us at Local Robotics pretty much everywhere, uh, Facebook, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, that kind of stuff. And then uh, you know, reach out, get in touch with us, and be happy to, to talk more and answer any of the questions that maybe we didn't get to today. We'll, we'll have All to right. have you back on at some point to, to go oh, into I'd more depth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah, thank you as well, Max Vogue, uh, for being here today. Oh, yes. wonderful. And thank you for listening. This is another episode of the 3D Pod. Enjoy. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.